but for mine, every time we go into that second hymn, about a third of our church gets up and leaves because they're all under like three foot tall. And so just kind of move out that way like, okay. <laughs> praise the Lord indeed, yes. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, and uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 9. We're going to need to need to look at that a little bit uh, more deeply here. Uh, again, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. And we're looking at our last, our, our last, our third warning passage here in Hebrews chapter 6. And we've been looking at this passage over the last several weeks. And it's been challenging for us, hasn't it? In many different respects. I know it's been very challenging for me, this entire uh, book of the Bible. There have been some hard truths that we've had to face in our own spiritual condition. And some hard truths we've had to look at of those that we love so dearly. But these truths have been necessary, both for us and for this little church in the book of Hebrews. I imagine they were wrestling through a very similar thing. People that they loved, people that they cared about, were now, they were finding out, not true believers. They were leaving. They were heading back to Judaism. They were abandoning their faith. And uh, all because of some persecution, all of that. They had faced that persecution, faced that trials. And just like Matthew 13 in the parable of the rocky soils, right? They received the word in joy. It looked like everything was going well. And then persecution and trials came and they abandoned their faith. They walked away. So they had ceased maturing, if you remember. They had indeed become dull of hearing. Remember that phrase, dull of hearing, because that's going to show up again later in chapter 6 again. He's going to use that to kind of bookend this entire section, this entire warning passage. And that word, natros, uh, means lazy or sluggish. They had become lazy and sluggish in their hearing. What does that mean? They had stopped growing in their understanding of the Christ, of the Messiah. They had clung to those Old Testament truths, the very basics of Judaism, and they had not progressed further. And because they had not, because they quit applying those truths to their life, because they quit growing in knowledge, they were falling away. They were falling away now. In fact, he tells them in verse 12 of chapter 5, by now, he said, you should be what? You should be teachers. Not only should you be growing and maturing in your faith as a Christian, not only should you be leaving behind those Old Testament uh, truths, which were the, a shadow, they were pointing to the things that Christ would fulfill, not only should you be doing that, but by now you should be at the point where you could be teaching others about Christ. You could be teaching others about what it means to be a Christian in the fullest sense of the word. The author of Hebrews says, not only are you not teachers, he calls them something else. He says, you're, you're not teachers, you're not mature, you're babies. You're infants, actually, is what the word is. You're, you're, you're still on your mother's milk. You, you have not gotten off. You have not moved from milk to solid food like all babies do. You're still stuck on milk. And the mature, he says, can handle the solid food in verse 14 of chapter 5 because why? They have matured in their faith. They can handle the deeper truths of Scripture. They can handle what it means and they can understand the new covenant. 
They can understand how Christ fulfilled the law. They can understand now that you're under grace and not the law. They, they've matured to the point where they've understood those things. Those who haven't, those who are still clinging to the Old Testament, he says, you're, you're still babies. You haven't moved forward. So it is from there, beginning in chapter 6, that he shares with them exactly what these elementary principles are that they're still hanging on to. And then remember, there are three couplets of theological truths, right? There's three sets of two, if you will. And he tells them you need to do two things. You need to leave those things behind, and you need to do what? You need to press on. You need to leave and press on. What are those things? Well, the first is you need to leave repentance from dead works and, and press on to faith in God. Right? Remember, we have talked about this several different times now, but repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. I turn away from my sin in repentance. That's what repentance means, to turn away. That's anoia, turn away. But not just turning away from my sin and then trusting myself to, to uh, rule over that sin, to conquer that sin. No, I turn away from that sin and I turn to faith or in faith to God. So you have repentance where you turn away. What are you turning away from? Sin. What are you turning to? Faith in God. So he says you need to move beyond those things. Second thing was instructions about washings. That's uh, the word baptismos. It's plural. In the New Testament, baptism is always singular. Why? Because there's one baptism into one body, right? One baptism. In the Old Testament, better translated, washings and laying on of hands. Both of those things were things that Old Testament saints would have been very familiar with, wouldn't they? They would have understood what it meant. They would have understood how the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and laid their hands on the sacrificial lamb, right? Or the goat. And the third one, he said, is teaching about the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. We saw all those in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. And then in verse 3, he says, if God permits, if God permits, what does he say? He said, this we will do if God permits. It seems like a funny thing to say there, but that becomes the fulcrum. That's the hinge to which now he moves in to the warning passage in verses 4 through 8. The better sense of that verse is we will press on to maturity. We will press on to completion. We will press on to a fuller understanding of Christ if God permits. For we know about those in the wilderness who harden their hearts against God and his truth, and God did not permit them to enter in. It's a warning. Then in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 6, we saw the five verbs, enlightened, tasted, been made partakers, tasted the word, and have fallen away. And those professing believers, which are still the subject here, had experienced all of these things, and yet many had fallen away. They had been illuminated, illuminated by the gospel. They had a taste of receiving the word. They had shared in the experiences of the Holy Spirit. They had seen others in their community of faith whose lives were completely transformed through regeneration and the work of the Holy Spirit. Personally, I think that they had been convicted of their own sin a little bit because it says that they, re they had repented. They had tasted the word. 
that word there means they had actually experienced, that's what tasted means, they had experienced the literal word. So these were things that the apostles had written. This is a second generation church. So you have Christ, the apostles, and now you have this church. So it's been, it's, it's very, very close to Christ. They've been illuminated by the gospel, experienced the blessing of Christ. They had made shares of experience of the Holy Spirit. They experienced the literal writings of God through the preaching and teaching of his literal word. They had seen the power of God through the confirming testimony of his signs and wonders and miracles. And yet no salvation. They were falling away. Falling back, returning to Judaism. And the consequences of being in that position where you willfully reject all that the Lord has given you, all that the Lord has given you to experience, if you harden your heart against that truth again and again, you harden your heart to the point where you walk away and never come back, he says here, these professing Christians have there are very deadly, very eternally deadly consequences for doing that. In verse 6, we see that fallen away. That carries the idea of being forsaken. These are the professing Christians. They're not truly saved. Instead, they've come right to the point of surrendering, but now they are falling back away in their profession. They've shared an experience of those who are truly saved. They've repented of their sins when they made their profession. They've seen the transforming power of God. They've experienced the work of the Holy Spirit, but then trials and persecution came and they fell away. How many of you here know people in your life that had made a profession of faith at some point in time and then things got rough in their life a little and then they never darkened the doorway of a church again? Just completely moved away, completely fell away. That's what we're talking about here. For these professing Christians, the Bible tells us in uh, Chapter of uh, yeah, Hebrews chapter six, verse six, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. And to renew them again means to restore them back to their original condition of repentance. So clearly they had repented at least once. They had recognized they were a sinner, they recognized their need for a savior, they had even made a profession of faith, but now they're falling back. And if they do, the Bible tells us. That it's not just difficult to renew them, it is what? Impossible. What does impossible mean? Impossible. Impossible. The Bible tells us if you've experienced God's gracious offer of salvation, tasted the heavenly gift of Christ, tasted the word of God in your life, shared in the blessings of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and then in full revelation of God and his word and his son, harden your heart, still in unbelief, refusing to surrender your life, it is impossible to renew you again to repentance. Why? The text tells us because you are re-crucifying Christ every time you do that. You are basically saying they were right to crucify him. He is not the Messiah. That's what you're saying when you're rejecting Christ and his truth. When you harden your heart in unbelief and reject Christ, you're crucifying him again and again. And it, the text tells us, putting him to open shame. You cannot re-crucify Jesus again, put him into open shame and disgrace, and then act like you didn't really mean it when you stand before the Lord. The Bible says 
If you get to that point where you've hardened your heart and make a conscious decision to turn away and never come back, it is impossible to renew. Where is that point? I don't know where that point is. Here's the thing. You don't either. So we're going to keep on, keep on sharing the gospel. We're going to keep on sharing Christ. Because I don't know where that point is. God knows their heart. I don't know their heart. And I'm praying that they're not at that point where they have just willfully hardened their hearts in unbelief. Where they're, what the text says, impossible to renew again. I don't know where that point is. So I'm going to keep sharing Christ with those in my family who don't love and know Jesus the way I know and love Jesus. Amen? I hope you're doing that. I hope that you are saying, I don't know where you're at, but that text scares me. And I love you enough that even if you get annoyed with me, I'm going to keep sharing Jesus. I'm going to keep telling you about Christ. Because I don't want you to be this. I don't want you to get to this point. Ever. Just like those who wandered in the wilderness, they saw God's hand at work. They tasted the good word of God from Moses. They shared in the blessings of God through his spirit. They saw his divine hand at work. They saw all the miracles. They saw a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. My goodness sakes, they even saw the Red Sea part in half, and they walked through on dry land. And that same group of people cried out in their very first trial, Oh, did you just bring us out here to kill us? That same group of people. What did God say to them? He didn't say you might not enter my rest. He didn't say you could not. He said you shall not enter my rest. To reject the message of the cross, the authority of the word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit is to willfully reject God and by implication embrace those who crucified our Lord. When you do that, you put Christ to open shame, just like they did 2,000 years ago. Now, just to make sure that we understood that correctly, he gives us a little agricultural analogy here, a little illustration in verses 7 and 8. That's what we looked at last time. At first, look at verse chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those whose forsake it is also tilled, receive a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. At first, the land, notice, benefits from the generous supply of rain and the gracious and, and, and produces valuable crops. And so it shares in God's blessing. But then it changes. And instead of producing this bountiful crop, instead of producing vegetation or fruit, if you will, what happens? It now starts producing thorns and thistles. The land that had drank so generously of God's gracious rain becomes worthless when it stops yielding fruit. It is no longer worth cultivating. It risks being cursed and eventually burned, which is a metaphor for judgment. The parallel is obvious to these professing Christians. All those who had had the gospel illuminated to them, all those who had experienced the word of God, tasted repentance and Christ's wonderful offer of salvation. They had shared in the work of the Holy Spirit in their own lives and the lives of others. They had seen God's hand and power work in the transformation of sinners to redeemed, and the same rain had fallen on them as well. In other words, God's gracious offer 
was there to them as well. They're part of that soil. Those that respond in obedience and trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of their sins, trusting in his finished work on the cross, trusting in him and him alone for eternal life, they receive the blessings of eternal life. They have the assurity of their faith. They have the hope of the promises in Christ. And so much more. Read Ephesians 1. Look at all the blessings. The true believers are already partaking in. And yet there's so much more. But if after receiving God's gracious gift, they then harden their hearts, reject the Lord Jesus willfully, intentionally, and in complete disobedience, start bearing thorns and thistles, Instead of the fruit of repentance for them, they face the judgment of God eternally. Now, after all that bitter news, all that startling, all of that, the gravity of what he's just shared with them about those who had fallen away, the author of Hebrews moves now to encourage and comfort those who may have been wavering. They may have been wavering and thinking about why joining those who are professing Christians and returning to Judaism, but not yet. There's a definitive change in tone that occurs in these last three verses of our warning passage in verses 9 to 12. See, the author of Hebrews not only wants to warn them about the eternal consequences of rejecting Jesus, he also wants them to have the full assurance of the hope that they have in Christ. He's going to set these two apart so, and, and compare them. That's exactly what he does in verse 9. So look at that, verse 9, chapter 6. But, when we see that, right, in contrast to that warning passage he just shared with them, beloved, he says, notice he addresses them as beloved. This is the first and only time this term is used in the entire epistle of Hebrews. Now, Paul uses that term quite a bit. It means divine loved ones or dear loved ones. The author of, his, of uh, Hebrews only uses it here. And it's clear that the writer is now differentiating between the saved and the unsaved among his readers. Notice he says, better things. Beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. What are those better things? Well, I can tell you, they're better than the things that, those, that await those who are producing thorns and thistles. We just saw that in verse 8. What are the things that are better things? All those things in verse 7, the blessings of God. And later he's going to talk about the assurance of their faith and the claiming of eternal promises. Those are the better things. He says, I know that the majority of you here, those who are truly saved... We have the full confidence you're going to reap all of the blessings of the assurance of your faith. The judgment, again, it's in contrast to those who are facing the judgment. So after detailing all the reasons why these professing believers who turn back to Judaism are not able to be renewed to repentance, he now reaches out to the true believers in the congregation. And remember, there are three types here in this church in Hebrews, and they're the same three that are in every single church since then. What are they? They're true believers, professing believers, and the unsaved. And every church has all three. Every, every church does. 
And so now after addressing those, right, and he, those, those three, right, he says now he wants to do two things. What does he want to do with these, these true believers? The first thing he wants to do is assure these true believers that their profession of faith is genuine. He wants to encourage them to keep on keeping on, to keep pressing on, to not lose the faith, to not fall away. This group has been enlightened. They've tasted, they've shared, they've experienced too. That same rain fell on them that it did those who were falling away. And he said, I'm convinced there are better things for you, the blessings of God. I'm convinced of that. The second thing he wants to do is he wants to point to these true believers as an example of what true faith looks like to any of those who are still contemplating falling away and going back to Judaism. And I believe this is one of those pastoral moments when as a pastor, you know you've caused some discomfort in your congregation by the hardness of what the text brings with it, the truth of God's word. Some of you will say sometimes when you're leaving, I should have brought my steel-toed shoes today because you were stepping all over my toes this morning in your sermon. Well, that's not me. That's God. That's the Holy Spirit doing all of that. But sometimes as a pastor, you know when you're going through these difficult passages. And trust me, that passage we just went through is probably one of the hardest in all Scripture to have to preach through. Nobody wants to hear that somebody you love may have hardened their heart to the points where it's impossible to renew them. Nobody wants to hear that. That's a hard truth, is it not? But as a pastor, I'm obligated to preach the word in season and out of season, even when it's not popular. And because we preach expositionally here, I can't run around those texts. I can't hide from those texts, beloved. I have to preach them. Word by word, and help explain what that means, as tough as that is. I think this is one of those pastoral moments when you know, dear Lord, help me take my foot off their necks. I can see them squirming there. The, the truth of your word is piercing their hearts. I think this is one of those moments. When you know those that you love so dearly are questioning their own faith to one degree or another, it's here that he wants to assure them, we are convinced of better things for you. That's what he's doing. We are convinced of that. He's saying, in effect, although I've had to speak to you true believers in such direct and unsettling terms, you were sitting in that congregation just like those professing believers. You heard that same message. And even though I had to give you that very difficult Truth, we are convinced that your faith is not like those of the professing believers who have fallen away. And then he gives them two reasons why he believes that. Why, what are those? First of all, what he believes about them. And secondly, what he knows about God. He said, these are the two reasons you can have assurance of faith and we're convinced of better things for you. First, he says here, notice he says here, uh, he speaks confidently about what he believes about them. And some of the things that they've demonstrated in their lives are things that accompany salvation. See that in verse 9. We're convinced of better things for you and things that accompany salvation, though we're speaking in this way. He's not talking about things that cause salvation. 
He's talking about things that accompany salvation. What are some of the things that accompany salvation? Well, if someone is truly saved, these are the things that will invariably be found. Look at verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to forget your what? Work and the love which you have shown towards his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. So let's look at that. Two things are mentioned here as the types of things that accompany salvation. Work and love. Work and love. The work here is, again, not the cause of their salvation, but the evidence of it. Go one book over to your right, to the book of James, chapter 2. James, chapter 2. Look at verse 18. Remember, James says, But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Right? He's not saying that faith is the, I mean, that works are the cause of his salvation. He's saying that works are the evidence of his salvation. They're the things that naturally flow out of a true believer. That same thing is basically shared by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1. Keep going to your right, a couple more books. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. 2 Peter 1, verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of him, Christ, who has called us by his own glory and excellence, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may have become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world by lust. Now for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, you're going to see that again coming up in verse 11, Supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours, incidentally, what do those qualities sound like? Anybody? Well, they sound like the fruit of the Spirit, do they not? Brotherly kindness, godliness, love, self-control. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. In other words, you've forgotten your salvation. You've forgotten that you're a new creation in Christ. Therefore, brethren, believers, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble, for in this way the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Those who were just professing Christ were missing these things. They were not there. The self-control, the perseverance, the godliness, the brotherly kindness, the love. So here again, the author is pointing us back to that agricultural illustration in verses 7 and 8. You notice that? The good soil drinks the generous rain and it bears vegetation. That's fruit-bearing. Those who are truly saved bear fruit. Bearing fruit is one of the things that accompany salvation. Your faith, 
your salvation has a direct bearing on the way that you think and talk and live. How can it not? How can not the third person of the Trinity indwell you? How can you not be a new creation in Christ and not have some change in your life whatsoever? A.W. Tozer says, the Holy Spirit never indwells a person and then leaves them unchanged. We do not produce fruit. Only the Holy Spirit does that. But we do bear fruit. Look at Galatians chapter 5. All those going to camp could probably sing it for you here. Because they sing it a lot at camp. Fruit of the Spirit song. Galatians 5 verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Hey, that's how it goes in camp. All right, that's how it goes. If we are truly saved, then these spiritual fruits should begin to be manifested at some point in our walk with the Lord. Now, we're not fruit inspectors, okay? And it is possible for you to tack a bunch of plastic fruit to your tree and kind of make it look like you are. But truly, the true fruit of the Spirit just flows out of you because your character, your life has been transformed by salvation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. You are a new creation in Christ. Yes, you look the same on the outside. But internally, you are a new creation. You bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And the more you yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit, the more fruit you produce. But beloved, if we don't see any fruit in your life at all, nothing, the Bible tells us that should be a warning sign to us that there's a disconnect somewhere. Might be in salvation, might be in your walk, might be a huge sin in your life. Whatever the cause, there's something wrong. The Bible tells us there's a problem. How many of y'all like popcorn? Y'all like popcorn? Popcorn's one of my favorites. But, you know, popcorn pops due to an explosion of moisture. Every, every kernel of popcorn has a little bit of moisture in it. So when you put that in the microwave... And the microwave heats up that moisture, it creates steam, and when the steam inside that shell gets to be too much, it presses against the shell and pop. It can't withstand the pressure anymore. It splits open and we have this beautiful little piece of popcorn, right? What once was small, hard little object, it would get stuck in your teeth, has now increased in size and become soft and fluffy. The old outward appearance is now dominated by the inside characteristics. Now, God has seated deep down in your soul something that is ready to respond to that right environment, to that pressure, if you will. When the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit begins to, if you will, cook your divine nature so that the steam of your new life begins to rise and press through the outer shell called the body, you begin to pop. And you will begin to look and act and talk and walk differently because the change occurring on the inside will now show itself on the outside. 
Spiritual fruit is part of that inward transformation and eventually manifests itself in your outward walk with the Lord. But there's yet another way these true believers have demonstrated their faith. Go back to Hebrews 6, look at verse 10 for a minute. For God's not just supposed to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. True believers not only bear fruit, they also demonstrate the love for Christ through their service to their brothers and sisters in Christ. Flip over, if you will, to 1 John chapter 4. I think Pastor Ben looked at that briefly this morning. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the same, where is it? For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. How is that love shown? Notice in our text, it's through ministering. That word is diakonu. What does that sound like? Deacon, deaconess. It means to serve. That's what that word means. Notice that these true believers not only served at one time, notice they also did what? They are also continuing to serve. How were they serving? Well, look at Hebrews chapter 10 for a second. We're going to bounce around a couple texts here, so... Keep your hand, your Bible handy. Hebrews chapter 10, look at verse 32. I think he's kind of pointing to the type of service they were doing. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Verse 33, partly by being made a spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, partly by becoming sharers, there's our word again, with those who were so treated... Verse 34, for you showed sympathy to whom? To the prisoners, and you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Look at the contrast there of how the true believers handled trial and tribulation and suffering, and notice that all the time they were suffering, all the time they were going through that, what were they doing? They were serving one another in the midst of that. They continued to stand fast in their faith, continued to serve the body of Christ, despite the persecution, despite the affliction, the loss of financial gain, and even mocking. They were in the prisons. They were in the orphanages. They were wherever the body of Christ needed them. What an amazing testimony. Is it any doubt that that early church turned the rest of the world on its head? Look at the way that they responded in love for one another. Did not Jesus speak about this very thing in Matthew 25? Look at that. Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. He says this in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 34. 
Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Then the king will answer and say to them, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. It's love for one another. It's one of the marks of the assurance of our faith. Beloved, if we know Christ as our Savior, should not these truths be spoken of us as well? Should not the rest of the world be able to see the love we have for one another in Christ? And not just by the things that we say, but by the way that we live our lives, by the things that we do for each other. We live in a day and age today where we're more diligent in protecting our time than we are worried about sharing our testimony. We guard our time like it's the most precious thing we have. You know the most precious thing you have is the gospel. That's the most precious thing you have. But we guard our time like that's the most precious time. And I get it. We're probably busier now than we've ever been in our entire lives. So I get it. We're exhausted. We're tired. We need to protect our time. But at what point does it trump our sharing and our service to one another? Where's that point in our walk where we say, my time is more important than God's will for my life? Where is that point? We're more focused on convenience than we are in serving others. And despite clear and present needs, the church today falls prey to the three worst enemies of service. Everybody, somebody, and nobody. Everybody else is looking for somebody else to serve while nobody fills the need. Beloved, how can that be? If one of the things that gives us full assurance of our faith is the love we demonstrate through our service to one another, why then do so many churches struggle to fill even the basic needs in the body of Christ? All right, let's look quickly at the second reason the author of Hebrews believes their salvation is true. It's what he knows about God. You see that? Back in our text in Hebrews chapter 6, he says, verse 10, For God is not unjust so as to forget. You see that? And again, forget what? Your works of love in his name. Again, this is not reaching self. This is not teaching, if you will, salvation by works. Ephesians 2.8 teaches us, right? We are saved by grace through faith and this not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. If I could earn my way to salvation, first of all, Christ died a needless, painful death. And secondly, then I should boast. I earned it. I'm just getting what I worked for. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says that's not the case. Beloved, it's so easy to be tempted to think when we're in the midst of our trials that somehow God has forgotten us and forgotten our affliction. 
but God does not forget. He knows every act of service for his children that you've ever done. Every single one of them. He knows every time you've chosen the nursery or junior church or Sunday school over your own comfort. He knows every time you came in and cleaned up just because it was needed. He knows every Wednesday night and Sunday school and junior church you've ever prepared for. He sees it all and he knows it all. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, uh, verse 2, we'll pick it up in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Verse 3, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love. What does that sound like? Sounds like we just heard in Hebrews. Your work of faith and your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of of our God and Father. And then he goes in verse 4, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. John MacArthur writes in his commentary, Paul says, the reason I know you're for real is because I look at your life and I see your work of faith and your labor of love. In other words, you have the fruit to go along with your statement of love. God knows your love is real. He sees your works that demonstrate to him the genuineness of your love. But notice this as well. It's not just love for our brothers and sisters in Christ that demonstrates the trueness of our faith. Notice what the text says. It is our love for his name. Do you see that in there? It's easy to kind of gloss over. It's his love for his name. And that speaks not only of our works, not only of the things, not only the fruit we bear, that speaks to the attitude we have when we're doing it. What's our attitude when we're serving one another? Is it one of drudgery or joy? Dear God, can't they move this to a later hour? Dear God, why are some of those children so unruly? Is it done out of compulsion or guilt? Or are we doing it because we desire to glorify God? What's what's our heart when we're serving? Walking through the motions of serving, hating every minute of it, grumbling and complaining because it's not what you wanted or not the way you wanted it, is not glorifying to God in the least. I hope that's not true of you, beloved, because it says way more about our hearts than it does about our love for him. Selfishly serving our own desires, putting our needs ahead of the needs of others is not the mark of a true believer. Thankfully, this is not what the author of Hebrews sees in the lives of these true believers he's speaking to now. He's saying, I'm seeing the opposite of that. I'm seeing your love for one another. I'm seeing your heart demonstrated in your love for God. That you're in the prisons, you're in the orphanages, you're, our people are being or persecuted, and you're there. You're serving them. You're with them all every step of the way. You're not just talking about your faith, you're living out your faith. And you're doing it all for the glory of God. You're bearing fruit. 
that shows this inward transformation. Beloved, these are some of the marks of a true believer. Their lives are marked with a bountiful harvest of spiritual fruit. They demonstrate love and not hate. They demonstrate joy and not malice. They demonstrate peace and not conflict. Are those the fruits that you are bearing in your life consistently? That's what we need to ask ourselves. For these are the fruits that are harvested when we've been enlightened, when we've partaken, when we shared in him. Do our lives demonstrate a life of service to the body of Christ? Do we find joy in serving our Lord regardless of the need? Or do we find joy in serving the body simply because for no other reason than we know it brings glory to God? God is not unjust. He does not forget. He remembers every single work, every single act of service that you did with an attitude that sought to glorify him and not you. Every single one of them. If you're a true believer, have full assurance in your faith because these are the marks of a true believer. And if you've seen those things, yes, we could do even better. But if this consistently marks your life, take great hope in that, beloved. Take great comfort in that, that this is your life. You should have great confidences in the promise that God made true believers, every single one of them, because every single one of them apply to you. Every single one. You are an example to those that may be struggling in their faith right now, and God is using you in a powerful way. Take heart, beloved. God sees it all, and he knows the intentions of your heart. I pray for many in our church today that that is you, that you are those of the true saving faith as demonstrated through the way in which you live your life for his name and for his glory. If you're here today and you're not absolutely sure of your salvation, if you have questions, oh, I pray Do not skip out of here and run to your next appointment without. Spend a little time. Hang around a little bit. Be happy to answer all of your questions. Make sure you know you're a true believer. And beloved, if you're here today and you're absolutely sure of your salvation, then have great hope. Walk with great confidence, not in you, but in him. Claim those promises that God has given you. They're for you. They're for you, the true believers. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the truth of your word. Lord, what a great encouragement it is to know these marks, Lord. And Lord, as I look around this congregation already, I see, Lord, the fruit of the work that you have done in their hearts. Lord, what As their pastor, it gives me great joy. But perhaps, Lord, there are some here that what your word described today is not indicative of their lives. Perhaps, Lord, they have questions. I pray, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself. They would humble themselves and know in their hearts the assurity of their faith. Dear Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand, shall we?